Hello, my name is Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And today we're going to be talking about British comedies, but we have a very special guest with us today. It's Alex West. We offered you a choice to pick what you wanted to talk about, and why did you pick British comedies? My father's British, and there was a saying that I heard a while ago that there's nothing more British than a British man outside of his home country, mm. and that very much applies to my father. So the films we're going to talk about today are films that I was like raised on. Mm. Like I was so little, and I would just like watch them again and again and again, um, and they mean a lot to me. And uh, I think they come out of a really interesting era of England's history. I think they come out of a kind of weird indie filmmaking thing. Thing. Um, uh, I think Handmade Films, which is George Harrison's company, had done a lot of really interesting work, and they exist in this kind of beautiful little vacuum, and um, I, I have a great fondness for them. So the first question I have to ask to everyone is, how obsessed were you with Monty Python? I was obsessed with Monty Python growing up. It's the perfect sort of thing for a kid, because it seems very intellectual, but it's also got, you know, guys in dresses and, like, Terry Gilliam's animation and that sort of thing. I was definitely the sort of kid who like had all had the book of the scripts and had all the sketches memorized. I saw Monty Python's Holy Grail. Actually, the first one I saw was Meaning of Life, which is a bad first Monty Python film to start with. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember being baffled by it and its gore and its grossness and the way that it didn't fit the narrative of what I expected a movie comedy to be. But then I got kind of obsessed and I didn't actually see the show for a long time, but I had the big book of scripts, yeah. which I read religiously. It was on after school on Bravo. Oh. I think the first episode I saw was the one with the Lumberjack song in it, <laughs> which, you know, as a kid was just, like, mind-blowing to me. Yeah, I was a big fan of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Mm. Um, that was kind of my gateway, and that was the one I probably went back to the most. As an adult, I developed a whole new appreciation for Life of Brian. Mm. Um, I think Meaning of Life is just not totally even though, I love it even though they won didn't they win like a big major award they won at the Grand Prix at the Cannes Film Festival oh, that's right. I actually think the meaning of life is really great I saw it again like within the last year and I think it plays to their strengths in a mm. way that the other films don't necessarily I don't think it's better than the other films but I think it has that kind of like hell's a poppin quality to it Holy Grail is the one that any nerdy kid in their small group of friends would just quote endlessly to each other right to the point where it's like it's not funny everybody does this but i just couldn't help myself there are definitely some of those python uh sketches that i wish i could see them again for the first time because all the humor has been drained out like <laughs> the dead parrot sketch i'm just like at this point incapable of seeing anything funny about it my favorite is uh hell's grannies oh yes, yes. that one just makes me feel really good about myself and i put a limitation on that one so i only watch it maybe like once a year when i'm having a really bad day <laughs> and a Fish Called Wanda, two of the major members of that comedy troupe, John Cleese and Michael Palin, wrote it together. And they also star in the film. And it was a movie that I actually didn't see for a long time. I think I only saw it like three years ago. It was on TV constantly when I was a kid. Yeah, I think we'd had it taped off of TV for a while, like when I was little. And oh my God, so good. What's interesting about Python, one of the things that's just interesting about Python is it's like a comedy supergroup. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the group, you can, and then when you look at their solo careers, you can see what they all bring to the group. So, you know, the Terry Gilliam, Terry Jones side of the equation is very kind of like off the wall, very stream of consciousness. Whereas the John Cleese, Graham Chapman side of the equation, they're the classical sketch writers. Very constructed. And watching A Fish Called Wanda again this week, uh, which I love, by the way, 
the script is so meticulous. There's uh, not a misplaced beat in that script. I think that watching it this time, the first thing I notice is I just mainline a bunch of Hong Kong comedies uh, by Choi Hark, and they have the same sensibilities, which is one gag building on top of another, uh-huh. just like Cleese would do in something like Faulty Towers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really refreshing. I hadn't seen it in years and going back to it this past week because, you know, contemporary comedy is all based on riffing and mm-hmm. outtakes mm-hmm. and just constantly going until you get like this kind of crazy heightened place, which I think Python structured so meticulously, as you guys were just saying. So to watch a film that is like a lot of long shots and like carefully constructed shots and a lot of like dialogue heavy stuff and some action within that it was so like you realize how far we've gotten away from that and I'm not sure I'm probably forgetting people right now who are actively able to do that like to really craft a comedic scene and not rely on a kind of like we're crazy we're just gonna keep being crazy yeah the plot is very complicated Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's got a lot of moving parts going on uh and most of the individual scenes, like that farce scene in John Cleese's study where he's making out with Jamie Lee Curtis yep. and his wife walks in, is, is a very like dense and complicated scene. Yeah. Uh, watching it this time, I was just looking at the way the camera moved throughout it. Yeah. Uh, you know, like hair trigger timing. What's the movie about? Wait, do you want me to? Who, who even cares? Honestly, <laughs> like it, it's been tw- it's been thirty years since it came out. If you don't know what Fish Called Wanda is about at this point, well, it's about a bank heist. Yes, yes. the end results of that bank heist and how people are trying to get to the next level and to have a happy ending, but all the complications that ensue. And watching it this time, it's very interesting to pick this one for British comedy because it's two kind of American louts against the most British type of people that you could get, mostly um, personalized by John Cleese. And also Michael Palin is this kind of uh, repressed animal lover. I I almost said beta male, but that's like... (laughs) I, but I should I shouldn't say that. That's bad. The well, parlance of our times. <laughs> I was surprised that uh, looking at the director of this, it was directed by Charles Crichton, who was actually this was the last film that he made. And at the time, the studio believed that he was so elderly that he needed some help. And John Cleese came in, and it was the uncredited director on it. John Cleese basically directed the actors. Mm-hmm. I, I understand. Yeah, that's what I've heard. And my dad was very big on the director just because he'd worked on so many kind of Ely comedies mm-hmm. and a lot of and he did a lot of theater so you get the sense of the um of the framing that he uses and the again the meticulousness that he has again you don't see that very often it's um interesting because i find the film to be filmic in some ways but not in terms of like advancements in camera or anything like that it basically just kind of sticks and it'll move slightly but it's not doing a, like a ton of like tracking shots or dolly shots or anything like yeah, that but it's, like when the camera moves it moves in the way that it should move yeah. like there's that scene again to go back to that scene in Cleese's study where he and his wife hug and then the camera like moves down to yeah. catch Jamie Lee Curtis grabbing something on the floor. Well, you can feel the director saying something that a lot of classic uh, filmmakers would say, which is, you know, I don't want the audience to notice that there's a director there. Like right. he doesn't want to make his presence felt. He just wants to tell the story in the most efficient way possible. Well, I mean, it's set up a lot like a play, mm-hmm. you know, uh, with a lot more scenes and sets, but there's a lot of, you know, the scene just kind of happens and the camera will just, again, as you were just saying well it'll zoom in on the one part you're supposed to focus on Mm -hmm. where in the theater you'd do that through lighting or something like that Um, but it's so far 
farcical and it's so much like the British, you know, panto farce quality. Some people in my family say stuff like, I only like British comedy. That's what I like. And, uh, you know, American sitcoms and stuff like that. That's not really my cup of tea. So what are those like distinct things that separate it from comedies from around the world? Uh, for me, it's uh, this is a bit cliche, but it's the dryness of the humor. Um, and uh, oftentimes that dry humor turns dark mm-hmm. very quickly. And a lot of my favorite British comedies, um, especially from this era, have a lot to do with class. Mm. And uh, all of my dad's family is still in the UK. He's the only one that came over. And they are so class conscious. It is actually slightly disturbing. Oh, wow. And it's still like it's it's so hugely omnipresent in that culture over there. And when I was a kid and, you know, going back and forth between England every so often to see family like John Cleese and his wife and that family, like that was almost like a template of what I was going to be dealing with to certain extents. Like there was a frigidity and um, uh, very much about like what kind of house you had and where did you go and do you have this car? And uh, so class is uh, very much at the forefront of these for me. Yeah. And most of John Cleese's best work is about class. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking every episode of Faulty Towers seemingly was Basil Faulty, Mm -hmm. like trying to get a higher class of customer into the hotel and, you know, get out the riffraff. And, yep. and I guess class is also very, very present in that continuum of all those post-war comedy groups, like the goons. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I don't know, I guess it was just like, there were these guys who were born during the war or after the war who like had to grow, grow up with a lot of British army generals, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, like on TV all the time. <laughs> Having said that, uh, it can be tempting to impose too much of one identity on British comedy when there's also a lot of stuff like Benny Hill. Or, <laughs> like there's also a the lot of... The greatest of all British comedians, there's right? There's a lot of garbage that they've yeah. produced. You know, you have your classicist like Mr. Bean. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, that was the first British comedian who I really got into. The Jerry Lewis of Britain for you, right? Sure. Uh, <laughs> you know, Rat I, race. Is and... it possible to do a class reading on uh, Mr. Bean? I never got into Mr. Bean. I don't think I've ever seen a full Really? It was like or... omnipresent I know. in my life. I, I so many of like, my friends would watch it and I just didn't get it. I didn't like it. I was like foaming at the mouse to see the Mr. Bean movie. Oh, me too. You know, maybe it was because <laughs> I was introduced to Black Adder. Sorry for listeners out there. Sorry, Black Adder's still a little eyes. too sophisticated <laughs> for me. I, I prefer the uh, go- the goofball with the... <laughs> Why, when is he going to jump off that diving board? <laughs> Uh, at the same time, we can't, you know, talk about Fish Call Wanda and not talk about uh, Kevin Klein's performance oh, in it. Oh, my God. Holy which shit. is insane. Yeah, I think my favorite sequence in the film now, I'm not sure if it was when I was a kid, but is the kind of final downfall of his character, Otto, <laughs> uh, when he's like kind of confronting John Cleese. Um, and then you see the um, Michael Palin on the steamroller just moving very, very slowly. <laughs> and it's just such a great gag and yeah. it's so well set up and then the, of course the camera flips and you see it from the uh, other point of view and then he gets his comeuppance um, and it's so wonderfully shot but Klein is so charismatic mm-hmm. and he's like good looking but you know he's such a dick so I love the way that character his, is realized. His comic timing like when he punches the picture of Jamie Lee Curtis yeah. and then he hands it to Michael Palin on the way out or actually there are two lines I just want to like repeat because I thought they were so fucking funny when I heard them this time. It's when he says Hi, I'm Harvey Manfringenson. (laughs) And the best part is, is that John Cleese's wife doubles down and can like say that name without missing a beat. And then the other one is like, it's not even one of the 
like best remembered lines in the movie. I just thought it was like incredibly funny when I heard it this time. It's when he says to Michael Palin, you're a very attractive man, Ken. You've got great bones and beautiful eyes and you dress really interestingly. <laughs> yeah, Kevin Klein is so funny in this film. And it's such Academy a... Award winning, by the way. Yeah, he did? For, for this yeah. Film, yeah. What? It was, it was a rarity because he hadn't won any of the other uh, awards leading up to the Oscars. So it was a total surprise that he won. I, I thought that Jack Sparrow was going to have a chance when he was nominated, but I'm glad to see the comedian actors still could win in the past. Yeah, I can't think of. Has there ever been any, another one? I don't know. Maybe I should research these things like before I bring them up. Like a male actor, or just, or like just a comedic com- act. actor. Oh, I don't know. I would say Marissa Tomei. In my yeah, in my cousin yeah, Vinny. Yeah. yeah. Does uh, Diane Keaton count yeah. for any hall? Yeah, that would. I would yeah, definitely qualify that, that as a yeah. comedy. So one of the things I wanted to talk about in A Fish Called Wanda, and I feel like it gets overlooked a lot, is Jamie Lee Curtis. Yes. Oh, she's so funny in this movie. And like all the guys, like everyone is great. Like there's not a bum note in this film, but she is so alive on film and she's got great timing and she's kind of the girlfriend, but also kind of the saboteur in a lot of elements. And she like, she's such a big narrative uh, focus of the film. And I we, love she's her. like the, everybody's circling her yeah. and she has to push everything in the direction of she's basically a straight woman but at the same time she has these big comedic beats that are very funny yeah i also think it's funny that the relationship between her and cleese actually works oh Um, totally great chemistry yeah like i I can think of so many ways that relationship wouldn't work i mean i think a lot of the reason it works is because you like the two of them so much that you're Mm. actually rooting for it to work even though the jamie lee curtis is terrible in the movie most of the time but you're still rooting for her compared to everybody else well you know the original ending of the movie was it ended on a darker note they shot another another version of the ending where Cleese gets on the plane and then they look at each other and they smile and then they lean back but then the camera moves in on Jamie Lee Curtis's shoes which are like these shark shoes like they've got these little fins coming out of them yeah like look it up on YouTube and basically the the implication is like she's just gonna bop him on the head after it's over and make off with the money well I think that it could have just been the result of them watching the movie and you can obviously buy the chemistry, like you said, between Cleese and Jamie Lee Curtis. So by the end, you actually want them to get out with a happy ending. Maybe it works because Cleese is so different from Kevin Klein. Mm-hmm. Well, and like, also the chemistry between uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and Kevin Klein is so different. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't feel like that kind of warmth and attraction. Mm-hmm. It feels like as soon as Jamie Lee Curtis pulls out the um, lead pipe to bash him on the back of the head, you're yeah. like, oh, obviously, of course. And, yeah. you know, Kevin Klein is so uh, adept at this unlikability that he yeah. has. He's and, so awful that yeah. Cleese seems like a real relief exactly. after him. But <laughs> Even I, though he's cheating on his wife. And <laughs> yeah, they're all flawed Abandoning his children. Sure. Did anyone see uh, Fierce Creatures, yes. the sort of sequel? What did you think of it? Um, the only part of that I liked was uh, Kevin Klein playing his own father, the Australian. <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't seen Fierce Creatures in a really long time. Uh, my, I remember hearing that that was one where the entire last third of it was reshot. Oh, wow. After. I think it shows. Yeah. Um, um, it's not a particularly good movie, but well, I don't know. Watching Fish Called Wanda this time, I felt a little melancholy just because I feel like all four of the people never did anything as good as this afterwards. I mean, maybe Klein and Jamie Lee Curtis did did yeah. some good stuff after. She's pretty great in True Lies. Yeah, yeah, she is. Although in a problematic role, I would <laughs> in say. In a problematic role. And I will say, uh, even though it's a 
kind of dumb film, she is pretty fantastic in Halloween H2O. Oh, love Halloween H2O. Yeah. Like, and of course she got her start in John Carpenter's Mm -hmm. Halloween is like one of the OG final girls and her returning to that film. And it's a very silly film, even though I have a big soft spot for it. She's got like, she has so much like vitality on screen and, and she's so funny and I just love watching her. But I mean, John Cleese is somebody who, you know, the script for A Fish Called Wanda famously took like five years to mm-hmm. write. But but like, you know, Cleese basically only had one other movie after this, which was Fierce Creatures. And, he, and the rest of it's, you know, cameos in Charlie's Angels 2. And <laughs> Once again, he Harry stars Potter. in Rat Race. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, Michael Palin after this basically just did those travel shows mm. and a couple of other movies. I don't know. I, well, like, now they it's do such all those shame. Monty Python tours. Mm-hmm. Well, they, yeah, they just did the the one reunion Ooh. thing, which I wouldn't necessarily recommend unless unless you're an obsessive. Yeah, well, there's a certain point, right, where they can't recreate the magic that you love over and over but again. But I love when it gets announced that they're, do- that they're doing a tour or something yeah. like that. And I'm like, oh, Eric Idle just got divorced. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't that the name of John Cleese last tour the alimony tour or like this is the last time you'll be able to see me before I die tour well I watched the Python reunion and as kind of painful as it was in in many ways like I don't know there's the the basic pleasure of just seeing these guys together which which is never gonna happen again sadly because Terry Jones got suffering from dementia Palin though is supposed to be uh, Terry Gilliam's Don Quixote. Is he? If it, if it happens, well, um, I really hope it happens. I hope so. I would like to see that. That would be an amazing. That's really funny that this Don Quixote project lasted so long that it got to the point that Michael Palin can realistically play <laughs> Don Quixote. It would be a perfect. Well, I don't want Terry Gilliam to stop making movies, but you know, Terry Gilliam's yeah. first picture was Jabberwocky, mm. and his last would again be starring Palin in a similar kind of universe. So, Alex, you also picked Whistnail and I mm-hmm. as a movie that you wanted to talk. And I think that even more than A Fish Called Wanda, this is one that when you say, like, British comedy, that, like, jumps right at the top of the list. Yeah, I'm always a little reticent to mention Whistnail and I because it's one of those movies where you say, oh, I really love Whistnail and I, and someone else loves it, too. They just start, like, quoting it at you. <laughs> and it's like, I know, I've seen it. Please stop. But yeah, that was another one I taped uh, when I was little. And uh, so I spent a lot of time as like a little girl watching this movie. That's, about like two that, hours. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I think if I'd seen this movie when I was a little kid, I would have been bored. Yeah, I think so too. I don't think I would have understood it. I think that yeah. looking at it now, I think I probably saw it right when I got in college. And like most people around that age, I'm like, it's like me. <laughs> Look at these two guys that can't take care of themselves. But I mean, frankly, like, you know, it's not like one of those movies where it creates this beautiful impression of the you that you want. No, I mean, but that's why I think that it has so much of a fan base because it is that reflection of the people that are watching well, it. Well, and I, and I did uh, both my degrees that I have, uh, undergrad and MA, um, <laughs> are in theater. And so I know a lot of actors and I have three roommates now. Mm. They're all actors. They're wonderful people and they're some <laughs> of my best friends. But like, there is like a real sense of that kind of um, bravado and ego that with Nil has um that uh, you need to have as an actor and uh, it's interesting seeing that played out and how adeptly richard e grant got to that character richard e grant in his first starring role in a movie just blowing it out of the water My do you God. think this yeah. film could succeed with anybody else from that main role like it's almost imagine impossible to imagine anybody else and have you guys read his um memoir with nails i read the part about hudson hawk <laughs> 
Is it good? It's a one. That was another book I read a lot when I was in my teens. Mm. Just because I was really interested in film, and he's a good writer, and he's very accessible, and it's basically like a diary format. And I loved his section because um, he was also in Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yeah. Uh, so he's like really funny chapters about that, and he's a very, I think, a very sweet man. Did he talk about a spice world? No, it was released uh, before that. But he does go into great detail about the filming of Withnell. And um, like he, I don't know if you guys know, he's allergic to alcohol. So he's never, he never drank in his whole life. And then one night, right before they started filming, he got shit-faced and like paid for it like the next day. And he documents that in the book. And also in the book, um, he mentions he'd been married to his wife uh, for a little while. Who's a casting director. I think they're still together she'd recently suffered like a miscarriage and they'd been trying mm. for a kid so he was in this kind of like bleak existential place and he'd been struggling with his career and they lost a child and they were just going like everything was happening and then um and then this movie came along and he just threw himself in it and was able to get to a place and so he used like that one night of drinking as like sense memory for the mm. whole thing the tone of this movie is very beautiful isn't it mm. i mean the fact that it kind of careens between really riotous comedy uh and this deep strata of melancholy. Yeah, it's so sad. (laughs) It surprised me that it hit me given so much of the movie. It's just Richard E. Grant being a total asshole to this guy. I don't know. Everyone's favorite Doctor Who, Paul McGillan. Yeah, but there's something about this idea of, you know, you're in your 20s and life's fucked up and you've got to make a decision to have a grown-up life uh, and either you're going to have success in your chosen field or not and something's got to give. And it's that hard point in your 20s when if you see yourself kind of taking off instead of your other friends mm-hmm. and the tension that puts in it. It's, it's a very real and, and tangible thing. I mean, Will sees that every day when he see, looks at me, right? Well, Will? when I look at the Loose Cannons podcast uh, <laughs> ratings, yeah. Hey, 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 we're supposedly in the top 10 of Dork Shelf articles every day, Will. <laughs> loose Cannons? <Yes>. Wow. <laughs> Excuse me. Watching uh, Wisnell and I this time I really paid attention to the direction by Bruce Robinson mm-hmm. who this was the first time that he actually got behind the camera he had been an actor co-starring in uh, like uh, Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet he was one of the leads in uh, Truffaut's The Story of Adele H and this was actually based on a novel that he wrote that got into a script form and then got into the hands of George Harrison who was kind of the money man behind handmade films, who made the picture. And I don't think a film like this, it's tough to see it in a studio system. And I think that handmade films is like the perfect place for it to be uh, conceived. And especially as a director, I really notice how cinematic he Mm -hmm. constructs the scenes. It's like a very beautifully ugly film. Completely. Even at the beginning. And the part that... Most people, when they talk about it, kind of forget that it's also, like, for the majority of its running time, a fish-out-of-water story. It really has that feeling of, you know, just being being in a cabin in the woods, unhappy, yeah. with everything being wet. I, I think everybody knows that feeling. <laughs> and, you know, if you've listened this far and don't know what the plot is, okay. <laughs> uh, it's about two struggling actors who live in a flat and decide to go to one of their uncle's cabins. Yeah, and, this very rich yeah. uncle. Played by... Richard Griffiths. Yeah, from Harry Potter. Who uh, is a very... Hmm, how would you describe it? Homosexual. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Who is supposedly based on Zeffirelli, the director 
character of Romeo and Juliet and Robinson's experiences with him. Oh dear. Did you rewatch it for the podcast? Yeah, no, I, I rewatch it every couple years, but mm-hmm. I almost feel like I don't need to. Um, but there's something very comforting about that uh, film. I find I just find it's like funny and weird, and there's no other film I can think of that's really like it in terms of the writing and the structure and mm-hmm. the simplicity. Uh, and I love that it's a two-hander. And one of the things that surprises me the most about it is how much I've been able to relate to it throughout my entire life. Mm-hmm. And and I'm not a dude. I don't experience that. And there are no women in the film. But it resonates on this very humanistic level. And when it's you're encountering failure, like real failure, and, mm-hmm. you know, you hide behind so many different things to do that. And, you know, I think as you're growing up, you know, you're seeing people, you know, deal with alcoholism and deal with mm-hmm. stuff like that. And it's funny and it's charming to a certain degree. And then, um, you know, I always get the sense that when the film ends and, you know, we, we were just talking about that melancholy ending that Winnell doesn't have much of a good life. And, and in fact, that character was based on a friend of Robinson's, mm-hmm. Vivian, I'm blanking on the name, but uh, another man who was seemingly very much like Winnell and he, he eventually died, mm-hmm. you know, not long after. So, so does the movie change for you? Like when you first saw it, how did you relate to it? I think I just thought it was very funny and very silly. And mm-hmm. Richard E. Grant's performance is very over big. the top. Yeah, yeah it's, it's big, but there's a grounding there. Mm-hmm. So you kind of believe everything that happens. And yeah, I think the older I get, the more I realize, you know, how scared we are of failure and fame and choices and, and the leaving people behind. Like that's something that has stuck with me in a really big way the last few times I've watched it because you know if something good happens in your career and you sometimes really want to share it but Mm -hmm. then you feel like oh but if someone else isn't doing that well like is this shitty yeah Mm -hmm. it's it's a complicated thing now and the thing about Richard E. Grant is like you mentioned he's very silly and big at the end of the movie but he's also very mean like in that last half of the movie when Paul McGillan is trapped with his uncle and it's revealed yeah. that Richard E. Grant told them yeah. that he had feelings for him. Basically for sport. Yes. Or to get him to off get, his back. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, oh, wow. And he's his friend? But then that sadness gets like, it just becomes the main thing by the end of the movie that it's impossible not to feel for both characters before the credits roll. Mm-hmm. I watched How to Get Ahead in Advertising this week. Uh, I, I believe you watched it, Yes, too. I did as well. Did you? Have you ever seen that? I saw it years ago. I think that was probably when I finally got around to watching in university, mm-hmm. and I kind of remember it. Uh, yeah. The thing about How to Get Ahead in Advertising is I always knew it as the film where Richard E. Grant grows a boil that can talk on his shoulder, and I was like, well, I don't want to see that. That sounds really goofy. Oh, we like, should say this is Bruce Robinson's follow-up, which mm-hmm. came out the next year. Also made by Handmade Films. Yeah. Probably one of the last films they made, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. When did Rockula came out? They made that one too, right? <laughs> <laughs> and How to Get Ahead in Advertising was not what I thought it was going to be at all. You know, it's surreally didactic it's it's insane like so much of the movie is just richard e grant ranting ranting about the advertising industry but i don't know i used to i'd seen it years ago and i had reservations about it but this time it worked for me because richard e grant's performance is so much in tune with the movie a movie this didactic could only succeed if it had a performance that's like up to 11 like his is well i was stunned by him honestly i thought he was just electrifying in the movie And Bruce Robinson makes a choice in that film as well that it does start pretty goofy and Richard E. Grant goes insane almost instantly and then the jokes just fall away. There's no more jokes in the last half hour. Yeah. But Richard E. Grant, it's interesting to kind of follow his career after this like set of films, right? And it's a 
I think disappointing. Yes. Yeah. I would agree. A Where, lot of kind of supporting roles and stuff. He's in the new Wolverine movie, for instance. As the villain. Role. Yeah. Oh. And he shows up in stuff like Doctor Who audiobooks. And as, the Iron Lady. Uh, I mean, he's a he's a weird guy. Mm-hmm. He's a, a somewhat abrasive presence on screen at times. Uh, maybe he's just not somebody who can he's easily... He's also in Jackie. Was oh, he? was he? Okay. Yeah. He plays like her interior designer or something. Uh, Jackie it, and the Wolverine movie. This is... It's the, the Richard E. Grant, Grant renaissance. renaissance. <laughs> yeah. It feels like <laughs> because Richard E. Grant came out out of the gate so big and large with these like headlining roles he may have just kind of been pigeonholed in these things well after you see him in with nail or how to get ahead in advertising or hudson hawk or hudson hawk sure like what do you what do you cast him in? <laughs> yeah. aside from like, like crazy british guy Brit. yeah Bruce Robinson, too, somebody whose career I think has been a disappointment. He did what? Like, Rum Punch? What the, was that? The Rum Diary. The Rum Diary. I saw him speak once around the time of the release of that film, and he was drunk off <laughs> visibly. Well, he may be a director that could only work within that system of handmade films, right? Yeah. Where it's kind of, like, creator-driven. Because I think he made another picture called, ooh, I don't know, uh, Andy Garcia started Je- it? Jennifer 8? Jennifer 7. Yeah, okay. That came out not long after How to Get Ahead in Advertising, and Mm. then it was seriously 20 years until The Rum Diary, which... I think was a bad well, film, and I and I I've only heard terrible things about that. The Rum Diary, it's bad. Yeah. And um, but I think sometimes I feel like it doesn't get acknowledged. But sometimes some people just have one story in them, mm-hmm. and I think he might have just had With Nail, and then kind of a short film that got a bit long and had to get ahead in advertising. Sure. I mean, because With Nail is so personal that yeah. you know after that, what, what what are you gonna do? There's such an intimacy to mm-hmm. that story, and it's like you were talking about making this kind of very particular squalor, very filmic. And um, that's that's what elevates the film. And that's what elevates the humor is because you've got this amazing mise-en-scene and, and all of this beautiful stuff happening. And uh, But then you've got this solid script at, at its core mm-hmm. and, and performances as yeah. well. If we're talking about British movies today, are there any other ones that you guys would recommend? When I think of things to recommend, my mind goes more towards the TV shows, honestly, mm-hmm. like, you know, Faulty Towers or... More recently, I mean, not even that recent, but but like the British Office, yeah, uh, I think is a masterpiece. Some of the stuff I've been impressed with over the last couple of years has has been Attack the Block. Which I love that movie. It's a very funny, strange movie. And then another one I got it's it's a brief TV series, but uh, I got turned on to it a couple of years ago, which is Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. Ah, love that show. I, I might also thinking of movies. I might go for. <laughs> Uh, Four Lions was really funny. Did oh, yeah. That? The Chris oh, Morris movie. Or I also liked Tristram Shandy was pretty good. Some, yeah. of, the, some of those Steve Coogan movies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, 24 Hour Party People. Yeah. 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 That was a bi- another big one for me, especially in terms of uh, the soundtrack. And I had a good time at the Alan Partridge movie when that came out. Oh, yeah. The movie's really hilarious. And it's yeah. funny that most of those, the things that we just mentioned, come out of people that either worked in television yeah. or radio because even joe wright the director of uh attack the block mm. he was he's a radio personality yeah and that's how he got into movie making i like Shaun of the dead <laughs> sure i, I, I thought like... that kind of went without saying i know yeah. but listen i mean I, w- I love the whole cornetto trilogy mm-hmm. i think it's great such a cliche, though. I like, know, but I gotta say it. choice. <laughs> Listen, yeah. at Edgar Wright, we mentioned <laughs> Shaun of the Dead in our episode. Yeah. Hope you like it. Yeah. Winky sign. A- we a- met once in Toronto, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. I hey, never- did I ever tell the story of when <laughs> I assaulted Edgar Wright during a screening of Evil Dead? Go for it. He, I was waiting in line, and it was my first year in Toronto, and Edgar Wright walked by, and I went, hey, Edgar! And he went, oh. 
and he stopped because he probably assumed he was I was uh, someone that he knew, and he stopped and talked with me for like ten minutes oh, nice. before going like, "Oh, I have to go over there," and I'm like, oh, "Okay, see ya." Do you remember when he would um, when he was filming Scott Pilgrim here? He would do those movie screenings. Wow, didn't you see the, the great short films that played before them, directed by me? Oh, maybe I did. This is before <laughs> I knew you. I mean, British comedy still remains the like. With comedy nerds, that's what they like mm-hmm. hold on a plateau, right? They, I almost feel though like if you're gonna say, uh, "Oh, I love Monty Python," that's a bit like saying, "Oh, I, I like music. I like the Beatles." <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, but it's a very kind of baseline in like a Western culture for this kind of like but British comedy. It's um, part of just our natural instinct to think anybody with a British accent is like, yeah, that's it's clearly which is why, which is why Piers Morgan is famous. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, do we have any letters? Well, yes, we do. Oh, man. Hey, this is a very rare privilege. You get to join us. <laughs> oh, my and, God. Uh... I get to sit in a room while you guys read off of Justin's phone. <laughs> yeah. What? What are you talking about? Can, I'm can reading... I add my two cents? You should have, yeah, brought, you should have brought your letters here, too. So I'm reading off one. paper <laughs> of the handwritten letters that we receive. We got a letter who it says it's from, oh, my, what a guy. Oh, that must be me. <laughs> it goes, hey, guys. Joe McGregor from Windsor here. I like because I have a guest. I'm putting this weird voice on <laughs> instead of just doing my normal letter reading voice. I love the show and I loved Freddy Got Fingered. But Tom Green had a large part in another movie that's really an underrated classic called Stealing Harvard. Uh, also Road Trip. I mean, if we're talking about the, the Tom Green filmography. Check it out. Directed. Oh, by the way, directed. Uh, Stealing Harvard was directed by Bruce McCulloch of Kids in the Hall. It was. Yes. Huh. I'm sorry to have to tell you that. <laughs> oh man. All right. Well, I'm taking off my Bruce McCulloch poster from the wall. <laughs> I, there's someone here, and I'm miming stuff that no yeah. one can see. He is also responding to the letter we read last week, which it was about Hal Hartley. He goes, I'm a huge fan of Hal Hartley's Henry Fool trilogy. It's a must watch if you're a fan of Parker Posey, uh, James Urbaniak, or Jeff Goldblum. Eh, we'll I, I like at least two of those people. <laughs> not the not the James guy. I would love to hear an episode about movies where people actually died while making them. I don't know what that would be about. So like the Twilight, Twilight Zone, Zone or, uh, or The Crow. Yeah. Oh. I don't, yeah, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um... I don't know if it could sustain a whole episode, but why don't we why don't we just riff on it here and now? <laughs> Wait, but do your listeners just send you stuff that's like watch Stealing Harvard? No, never. That's like the first time. <laughs> the first person to ask us I don't to think, watch I Stealing Harvard. I think that's Harvard. the first time anyone has recommended Stealing Harvard to I anyone. I think so too. But maybe this guy sees like its hidden depths somewhere. Po- possibly Stealing Harvard There's could like emerge. There's like a ninety percent chance that's Tom Green. <laughs> that would be amazing if it was Tom Green. He's a big like um between like tweeting at Drew Barrymore and like He does not tweet at Drew Barrymore, does he? Why wouldn't he? <laughs> what do you think he has going Drew, on? Drew, you still have some of my stuff. Can I come over? <laughs> Remember Drew, how you cool ignored? that was? I re- like, well, I remember Tom Green being in Charlie's Angels and uh, then not being in the sequel. Yeah. Um, but uh, movies where people died on the set, can anyone name any others? There are obviously a lot where stuntmen died. Yeah, like a stuntman died on Vin Diesel's Triple X. Uh, when I got this letter, I looked up a few things that I heard stuntmen had died. But, like, what would we talk about in relation to, like, a stuntman dying? Oh, what about, uh, what's-his-nuts from Gladiator? Oliver Reed. Well, there are a lot, are a lot of people who have died during filming, filming, but not on the set. Oh, okay. Like, uh, Heath yeah. Ledger, another another guy. Well, he uh, died He died before it was released. Well, he yeah, he died during the filming of... Ima- oh, Imaginarium yeah. of Parnassus, yeah. Right. So they got... 
the three other people I to mean, replace him. Uh, maybe the way that you could talk about it, how filmmakers deal with that death and how a film kind of evolved from that point, like something like Parnassus, where it had to be completely kind of reimagined of how they would do it, or The Crow, how they had to kind of hide Brandon Lee in shadows and stuff like that. I think there's some, like, compu- I don't know if he's computer-generated at all in the movie, but there are definitely scenes with, you know, stuntmen yeah. and other people. And also, when you watch The Crow, Brandon Lee has less screen time than you would think mm-hmm. he would have, um, which, I mean, in a weird way, benefits the movie Mm -hmm. totally because he's much more of a looming presence and vic morrow in the twilight zone his death uh kind of resulted in i think there was supposed to be more of a happy ending to the movie and Mm. because they couldn't shoot that scene it got kind of like a much darker Mm. one where that short was not supposed to end i've never seen the twilight zone movie but i imagine that must be a a weird experience watching it. Like hanging over it the entire time. Yeah, it's not a pleasant but, experience. But like looking at Vic Morrow in the movie and knowing, oh yeah, he little does this guy know he's shortly away from a helicopter falling on him. Oh, uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space. That's right. Bella oh, Lugosi yeah. died. Yeah, yeah. And we kind of talked about that in, Ed Wo- in the Ed Wood episode we did. I guess, so. but I think that's probably the most creative uh, mm-hmm. refresh. Oh, oh, one more I want to bring up, actually, is there were four Three Stooges movies <laughs> made after Shemp died. Yeah. Oh, and dear. and most of them are just stock footage with Shemp, but they also got this other guy to play Shemp from behind. <laughs> so. Uh, oh, oh, just thinking uh, Paul Walker. That's oh, right. Fast and Furious, Fast yeah. Furious 7. Yeah. yeah. Which I think there are, it's pretty obvious in that movie. When, it is. Yeah. I've never seen any of those movies. But if you want to have uh, some fun, some morbid fun while watching those Three Stooges movies, look for any of the scenes where it's just Mo and Larry together. <laughs> and then Larry says, hey, Mo, where's Shemp? And then <gasps> Mo, who of course was Shemp's brother in real life. <laughs> oh my God. Has to, has to say, oh, I think Shemp's out somewhere. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's <laughs> so dark. Awful, awful. And the letter writer also says, could you do an episode about Bollywood films that need Hollywood remakes, like S. Shankar's I? Uh, well, first of all... We'd love to do an episode on Bollywood films. The problem is, me and Will don't know that much about them. I think we could do it. I mean, it would help if we knew somebody who knew a lot about it. I don't necessarily think the Bollywood films need American remakes. I, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, basically, if you remade them in America, you'd lose a lot of what, what's kind of fun about them. Mm-hmm. I would just uh, second uh, this this person's endorsement of I. Mm-hmm. Not I, a Bollywood film, actually, though. It's a Tamil film, is yes, it? Yes, it is. Okay, well, it's super fun. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so much fun. But I don't know. I think we could maybe pull it off if we did Cholet and Dawn. Yeah, maybe. like the um, kind of textbook one. Yeah, and we and you know we kind of uh, well I, I don't know if anybody's interested in hearing the opinions of like two dumb guys <laughs> who don't know anything about an entire culture. I think that Bollywood <laughs> films is one of the national cinemas that is the least represented, kind of academically or kind of have real buffs of it in North America. Like I remember once on Facebook just desperately asking, does anyone have any Bollywood film recommendations for this year? Because like I don't know anything about them and just being silence responding. Well, I'm sure there are, Mm -hmm. just maybe not in those communities. Probably. I I know that I I have two books on Bollywood cinema that are sort of academic-ish and I I wasn't that impressed by Mm -hmm. them. But I mean, there's got to be good academic writing about it right i mean how can they're how can huge they i mean the yeah they're huge. huge they're like the, yeah. so i think it's just that we're maybe not in tune with yeah. the communities yeah so but if you guys I, know bollywood film send us a letter but one thing that i've noticed is like if you look at bollywood movies you know irony has not infiltrated uh bollywood and 
there's this theater in North Etobicoke, uh, the Albion Cinema, where they have a little, like, it's almost like tribute magazine for Bollywood. Mm, and when, yeah. you, when you read it, what's interesting about it is they they really do worship their stars mm. as gods. I mean, not to, uh, not to paint with too broad a brush, mm, right. but there's not a lot of irony in the way they deal with their celebrity culture, mm. where, t- to me, Bollywood still feels almost like it's at, like, the studio system. Mm, yeah, yeah. And One- maybe film studies corresponds with that, and maybe not. I don't know. All right. So, and he also asks, still waiting on a four-hour-long Godzilla episode. Jesus Christ, this guy's demanding. <laughs> He's a fan, though. I think that's great, because we've, we've mentioned that. Well, it, it's coming, eventually. So, Alex, before we end this episode, do you have anything that you want to advertise or tell people to listen and or read? <laughs> <laughs> um well, sure. Twist my arm. Um, yeah, uh, I co-host a podcast with the lovely and talented Andrea Subasati, and it's called The Faculty of Horror. You can find us on iTunes or facultyofhorror.com. Much more professional than this one. Yeah, what mm. do you guys like about it? She was just telling us that she has two mics. Yeah. We only have one. Oh, man, we should like beg listeners to like send us a mic. Oh, yeah, please do. Get <laughs> yeah. in touch with Justin on Twitter. Listen, I bought the mic that you're listening to this store for $10. You also wrote a book, didn't you? Yes, I did write a book. came out last summer called Films of the New French Extremity, Visceral Horror and National Identity. Um, and it's been doing pretty well. So It yeah. has. I mean, you're wearing that giant fur coat yeah. and have the gold pip cane. And so. I just tipped you both as I walked into the store for that reason. <laughs> You must be the help. Tell me when the actual hosts are going to arrive. Um, But that's been kind of a wild ride to work on something so privately and and then have it go out into the world. And it feels like my baby. Uh, I'm working on a new book now. I'm still writing it. I've got a few more months to go with it, I think. Uh, And it's about the 90s teen horror cycle. So before Scream, after Scream, Scream 3. (laughs) Valentine, yeah, no, one? that's that's the early two thousand. Oh, Is it? I'll yeah. know what you did last summer. I still know. Uh, fear. Oh, love fear. Marky Mark. Yeah. Halloween, the Revenge of Michael Myers. <laughs> Yeah, I kind of omitted that one. Okay. Well, oh, yeah. yeah. So, uh, well, we're spoiling too much of what's going to be in the book. Yeah. You, it's just a list of titles. Yeah. Faculty. Yeah. yeah. And then, like, Laura Ipsum for, like, the rest of it. So, yeah. So, uh, stay tuned for that. I would expect that to be released end of this year, beginning of next. Oh, wow. Great. Will, have you written any books yet? Not yet. <laughs> I'm, 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 like, with Nail. I'm, if, I'm a failure. If you could write a book on anything, what would you write about? Uh, I'll tell you off mic. <laughs> Wait, Are you worried that someone's going to steal your idea? It's I, not Jerry I, Lewis or Jackie Chan. I don't want to. I don't want to jinx anything. Okay, okay. I've ha- I, I have thought about this. All right, I'm going to keep that in so people would be like, "What? What is that book going to be?" <laughs> so next week, Will, we're going to be doing Robert Altman. Yes, uh, Popeye himself. <laughs> I don't think he was Popeye. Did he see himself as a Popeye-like figure? Well, I think every, you have to tune every in. artist, uh, you know, <laughs> puts a lot of themselves into the work. And we will be watching Nashville and. Popeye. <laughs> yeah, because we got to watch Popeye. Yeah. Basically, Will came to me and he went, I, I really want to watch Popeye. I don't know who directed it, but <laughs> if we could just do a whole episode about it, that would be great. Yeah. As per usual, uh, feel free to send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com and rate and review us on iTunes, please. Uh, my name is Will Sloan. My name is Justin DeClue. And thank you very much for helping us out today. Your name is... Alex West. This podcast was produced and edited by Can Make Productions.